That'll do. Vic put you to sleep with his announcements. They were all pretty exciting. Wednesday's going to be good. Here for the prayer meeting. And, uh, and we're kicking off fellowship groups again this, this week. So we're all very excited. Stand firm's coming up. And we've got Bible to preach. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue through this momentous series. <clears throat> this amazing declaration of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We went through uh, uh, last week, we looked at uh, the, some, some verses 12 through 19 where Paul laid out literally the worst imaginable news possible, which is that the dead are not raised at the end of the world and therefore Jesus himself is not raised. And he, he went through all of the inferences and applications and implications if that is true. It truly was the worst news imaginable, that we are still in our sins, that God is a liar, that everybody who is a Christian who has died is now burning in hell, uh, that, that those who preach waste their lives, that one hit home for me. And yet, now we're going to see in verse 20 onwards, we're going to see, uh, I'll read it now, and you'll see the stark contrast, where he was saying the worst imaginable news last week, we're going to see the greatest imaginable news, the implications of the fact that Jesus is alive, that the resurrection is a reality, first for Christ and secondly for us in him. Look at verse 20, he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. May God bless the reading and preaching and hearing of his own authoritative, precious, inerrant, eternal word. 1 Corinthians 15. This has been a, 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 a tight logical argument that Paul made last week all about the, the implications if Jesus did not raise. And this week he starts out with just a, just a bold-faced declaration. Look at how he starts in verse 20. He says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is the, this is the Christian preacher's assurance and foundation and basis to everything he says. It is not that, in my humble opinion, I believe that the evidence seems to point to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth likely rose from the dead. It's not that we believe that we have our truth and the world has their truth and, you know, there's, there's, there's opposing systems of truth, but whatever is valid for you, whatever is true for you, that's what, that's what you should hold on to. That's valid. We're not those who simply stand on religious opinion or that we believe in some kind of spiritual resurrection that did not take place in space-time history where the living body of Jesus was risen and walked around. We do not believe here at Hope Church of any kind of half hearted, unspirited, half-truth, we believe in absolute fact. We don't care about their truth and our truth. We care about the truth. Because the truth is not just a set of beliefs held by certain people. It is God himself and what he has spoken through his word by revelation into this world. We stand firm on the resurrection because we stand firm on the existence of truth. From this pulpit, you'll never hear things such as uh, uh, that we believe that the resurrection is potentially true, that some good evidence points that way, and so we choose to sort of throw our faith and make up the rest of the way. You will not hear from here that we, that we believe that e it is even potentially untrue. 
So what we do, we don't do the kind of apologetics that says it's possible, it's potential that the resurrection didn't happen. There's that wiggle room, but we choose to believe that it is fact. I hear this all the time in well-meaning preachers who, who want to be maybe humble, not come across too arrogant, leave room for the doubters and the skeptics in the congregation. And you're welcome to be here if this is you, and we're thankful that God has brought you among us, but you're not here to hear maybes. You're here to hear whether you know it or not, but the Spirit brought you here, and the reason you're here is to hear by the ear the facts of the resurrection of Jesus. We don't say that it's even potentially not true. We say that this is so true, that if the resurrection did not happen, truth is not true. No such thing is, is there as truth if Jesus did not raise. God has spoken it. He has proven it by the testimony of his apostles. In fact, Paul says, in absolute, historical, philosophical, theological fact, Jesus is alive. That's the foundation. That's where we start. That's the confidence. Not just people's opinion. Not just something spiritual. The resurrection. Is that in our heads yet? The resurrection is absolute certainty. Now, since the resurrection happened, last week he looked at if the resurrection didn't happen, what are the implications? This week he's looking at the facts of since the resurrection happened, what does that mean for the human race and all those who find themselves in Jesus Christ? So we're going to look at verse 21, uh, uh, 20, sorry, 20 and 23 together because Paul does something of an archaism here, which is really just a, a Greek way of writing in a sandwich. He makes argument one, then argument two, then argument two, then argument one again. So it comes right back full circle. We're going to see 20 and 23 go together as really the same sandwiching argument, and verse 21 and 22 are sort of building on top of each other. <clears throat> so in verse 20, what Paul calls Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. This in the Greek is the word apake, which is meaning it's coming from the, the agricultural harvest metaphor. It's uh, what they would say is that as they, uh, they've, uh, it, it comes harvest time, the next three months are going to be harvest. Well, we've gone out and we've harvested for one week, maybe one day, and we've brought all of the first parts of the harvest, which they call the first fruits, the apache. They bring it into the storehouse, they assess it, they look at it, they go through it, and that is a symbol and a sign of all that is to come afterwards. So as we start looking at Paul's word metaphor here, we're going to pull from Genesis. We're going to pull from uh, the meanings of the, the, the harvest metaphor. We're going to see what he means, and we're going to get into a bit of covenant theology. When he talks about that, this harvest metaphor of Jesus being the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, by fallen asleep he means Christians who are dead. But speaking of a dead Christian is just, it's unfitting because death doesn't touch Christians. The body goes to sleep. The soul goes to be with Jesus. So when he calls fallen asleep, he's speaking of dead Christians. It's unfitting to speak that way of non-Christians who are dead because they are not simply asleep. Their bodies are asleep, but their soul is in hell. And so Paul uses this way to speak of the privileged nature of the dead Christian, that he is simply asleep, awaiting the day he rises again when he wakes up at the return of Jesus. But let's keep going. He says the first fruits of all of the Christians who will die or have died or are currently dead. Three things that he means by the first fruits. Number one, he means that he is the first to come in. We've, we've slightly covered this. 
Jesus is the first one to come in, just as the first of the harvest uh, gives its first fruits, you guessed it, first. The, the chronologically, it comes first and the rest will come later. That, that's really what it's meaning. This is why uh, Paul in Colossians chapter 1 speaks of Jesus as the firstborn from the dead, or the first fruits from the dead. He's the first one out of the grave, knowing that many more will follow him. <clears throat> because no one else has ever been resurrected apart from Jesus Christ. We see uh, uh, stories in the Gospels, and even some things happen in the Old Testament, that we need to be able to make a theological distinction between. People came back to life. They experienced death and then maybe a, maybe a prophet or maybe one of the priests or maybe Jesus or one of his apostles in the narrative of Scripture. They bring them back. But that's only ever a revival. This happened with Lazarus. He died. Jesus undid that and reversed it and brought him back in his same body. And he was to die again. Anybody that was risen up from death before Jesus or except for Jesus ended up dying again. They, they dug a second grave. They, they got a second coffin. They, they chiseled out a second tombstone with new death dates on them. But Jesus is the first one to ever be resurrected. <clears throat> so make these distinctions in your theology. Revival or being raised again is not the same as resurrection. Resurrection is a new creation. Out of the same body, God makes something glorious, and we're going to see what that future body looks like for us in coming weeks in chapter 15. But for now... It suffice to know that Jesus was the very first of the new creation. He was the first thing created that will exist in the future, in the heavenly, eternal state. So first of all, this first fruit metaphor means that Jesus is the first one. But secondly, it means by implication that there is more to come. If you're maybe the landowner, you're not out picking all the fruit because, you know, you've graduated from that. You're, you're a Boaz type. You're the kind of guy who owns land and gets all the, uh, the young teenagers on minimum wage to go and do the picking. And you're in the storehouse when they bring in all of the harvest of the first fruits. What that becomes to you is it is laid down onto your table and shown to you. It is an assurance that there is more to come. They don't start preparing the huge barns and the, the huge storehouses and getting them prepared for the inbringing of the harvest simply because one bag is put down on, onto their table. Yet that's what they do. One bag brought in and then they make all of these enormous preparations. Why? Because that one thing is going to take up all of the space that they have in their store? No, because it's a law of nature that if the first fruit comes in, then the rest of the harvest is going also to come. And so when, when Jesus said that he was going up into heaven, he's going to prepare a place for us. When God says that he's going to create an entire new heaven and earth, is that simply because the first fruit, Jesus, has risen from the dead and is, he just really likes a big backyard? And he's going to be him in the new heaven and the new earth with everything for him? Of course not. This is all God responding or, or acting in the, because the fact is true that while Jesus is alive, he seals by a law of God's design that there will be a vast multitude still to come. Jesus crossing the line over resurrection has assured to us that there is a great throng of souls in his train. Isaiah 53 talks about this in verse 10 and 11. It says, in the, in the darkest 
of hours of the Messiah. In the most hellish of experiences that anybody has ever experienced, especially Jesus, in the anguish of what he experienced on the cross, there was hope, there was faith, there was believing God's promise that through this death would come life for billions. Isaiah 53 verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Jesus went to the cross with this prophecy in mind. If I go and bear my flesh to punishment, if I pour out my life, if I allow my blood to be shed in agonizing horror, from that I will see an offspring. I will, I will see greater, greater than Abraham was promised, just, a, just a, a bunch of descendants, greater than David was promised, which was a kingdom. He had all of these promises culminating. Jesus foresaw that on the other side of his death was a vast multitude called by his name, washed by his blood, his very offspring. Because he is the first fruit. Isaiah goes on. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is the reality that Isaiah was prophesying, which Peter, uh, sorry, Paul speaks about here in 1 Corinthians 15, that because Jesus was the first fruit, he came and it seals as fact, as promised history yet to happen that the rest of us will follow him beyond the grave. That's good news. And then the third thing that this first fruits were, I know I'm spending a lot of time on one word. We do that here. That's okay. Well, we'll get through it. We've got, we got time ahead of us. Now, now, now look at verse 23. So we called him the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. We see the next element of this in verse 23, the implication of him being the first fruits. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what we see is that uh, Paul is saying that while the, the first fruit means that he's the first, and the first fruit means that there's more to come, the third thing that the first fruit means is that the rest that is coming will be exactly like what has come first. You don't take in a first fruit of apples and wonder what sort of juice the next lot of harvest is going to produce. It's going to be apples. You don't, you don't take in oranges as the first fruit and just hope you get bananas second time around when you go through the same field and pluck from the same trees. The first fruit comes and maybe it's the barley, maybe it's some other type of grain, or it's a fruit as it's laid down on the table for assessment. What you can do is look at it, look what it's like, look at its deficiencies, look at its health, assess it, and know that all that will come after it will be of the same quality. This is why the Apostle John says, what we will be in that day when Jesus comes back, precisely what we will be, we do not know. Don't ask me what the toileting's like. Don't ask me if we do flights like Jesus does. Don't ask me if we go in and out of walls. Maybe we'll look at that in a couple of weeks where there's a lot of mystery. But we know one thing, which satisfies the most questioning soul, which is that you will be like him. 
Whatever Jesus has in that day, other than being worshipped, we will be like him. The, the body that he has is a glorified human body, which is the first one of many that will be just like his body. And so, we know that as surely as Jesus Christ arose, you, Christian, will arise in him and like him with a body as his is. That's, that's what this is promising. We are going to follow in his train as he is. We've been using the word archetype uh, or, or uh, uh, arpake is that Greek word for first fruits. We use in theology the word of archetype. We use the, you know, the type came beforehand sort of foreshadowing Jesus. The lamb is a type of Jesus. Abraham was a type of Jesus. David was a type of Jesus. Moses was a type of Jesus. But Jesus is the archetype. He's the overarching, culminating, ultimate type. So we use the word archetype in theology, but we can also, in this first fruit language, use the word prototype. Prototype is, is maybe it's a factory line of toys. Maybe it's, it's a, 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 a car being produced. Maybe it's the, the first design of a certain kind. A prototype means the first type of something. It's the first one that is produced, which, you know, the quality assurance guys go and whack off the, the conveyor belt and look at and, and assess and, 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 and judge. That's what a prototype is. The rest of them are going to look just like it. Jesus is that for us. The prototype of everybody who has died will come back looking exactly like Jesus. We need to think the way that... Theologians pull this text apart. The way that Paul wants us to think is that the resurrection that happened in 33 AD and the resurrection that happens at the end of the world are not two different events. They're not two different resurrections. There's one resurrection. It's one reality. It just happens in two phases. You don't read Genesis 1, right? You don't go and read the Genesis account and, and talk about the first creation, talking about day one, and then the third time that God created the world on day three. You know that that's, it happened in stages and in an order, but it was still just the one creation. It's the same. It's the same. When we talk about Jesus rising from death and us rising from death, we shouldn't distinguish and separate to such a degree that they're different events. We need to think of one happening moments before, just like the, the front carriage on a train tears into the station just moments before the rest. But what, what separates in that tiny little gap is all of church history. It's one reality that just happens in a certain order from God. We enter into the very same resurrection as Jesus because he is our first fruits. How much confidence does this give to the Christian? Maybe you in the face of death. Maybe for the, the missionary on death's door in a foreign land. Maybe for the, the persecuted Christians who face swords and risen fists. Maybe for Christians who simply through sickness or situational hazard face death in front of us. How much confidence does this give us that you can submit to death? You can bend your knee to its service. It is just a courier coming to take you to the Lord Jesus, but its death warrant is signed. Death's death warrant is signed, and one day you'll come back to death 
and you'll pluck from its grip your very own body and then watch its head be crushed under the king riding on a white horse, the Lord Jesus Christ. Death is is just a doorway for us which will one day be destroyed itself. It can have our body for the moment. We will take it back on the day of glory. This gives us great confidence as Christians. And, And this starts... preparing us for that middle section, 21 and 22. I want to take us back. If you've got a Bible, go to Genesis chapter 1. The first mention of fruit in the Bible was not Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, but the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. Look at verse 11 to 13. We spoke a few weeks ago from verse 4 when we read that Jesus was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We looked at a frequent theme in Scripture, which is God's deliverance coming on the third day. But there is other theologians who look at that third day motif, combine it with the first fruits language of verse 20 and 23, and point back to Genesis 1 right here that we're going to read. I want you to hear the third day reference and the references of fruit. And then I'll explain it because it'll just sound confusing otherwise. God said, verse 11, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the third day. All this language of fruit and of God speaking, that he he is intentionally creating fruit to grow in such a way that all of its seed is inside the fruit that is produced. Everything that will come from that fruit is already inside that fruit at the moment of its ripening. And it produces according to its own kind. An apple tree cannot produce an apple with apple seeds that produce an orange tree. Those seeds within it are within it, and those seeds within it will create according to the first fruits, the first kind. Are you following how this is pointing to Jesus Christ? Because what we're going to see now in verse 21 and 22 is that there is two fruits. There is a fruit called Adam, in which is all of his seed, who are just like him and by nature cannot help but produce the same works and life and fate that Adam, the fruit, has And then there will be a second fruit, Jesus Christ, in whom is all of his seed, whose seed cannot escape following the same fate as Jesus himself has. Now look at verse 21 and 22 in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Here he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 21 is telling us that 
humanity was cast into death by human sin. Humanity, or, or Adamanity, if you want to, the Adamites, all those from the race of Adam, the Adamites, all the Adams were cast into death by the sin of the first Adam. And that redemption from such a death had to happen at the hands of another Adam. A man plunged us into death. A man had to be the means by which we came back from that death. One man brought death. One man brought resurrection. And then verse 22 is telling us that all who are in Adam die. All of the seed which are in the fruit of Adam die. Because that fruit is a dying fruit. The seed will be like the fruit which is death. All who are in Adam die. And all who are in the fruit of Christ will be made alive. All those in Christ will be made alive. Each man, or as verse 45 tells us, Jesus is the last Adam. So let's start using that language. Each Adam, the first and the last, or the first and the second, each Adam has consequences for his race, which comes out of him like seed from a fruit. This is what we call covenantal theology. We have covenant heads, the, the, the heads of different races, or the, the heads of different federations under God. That God made a covenant to the whole human race through Adam. When no one of the race was alive except for Adam and Eve, we were all in him like seed is in a fruit. So that what you do to that fruit, you do to the seed in him. And so God made a covenant with Adam, which was really a covenant with the whole Adam human race, such that whatever he did in that covenant would be counted to us whether he was righteous or he was evil, would be counted to the seed in him. Whether he earned blessing or he earned cursing would be attributed also to the seed that is in him. He was our representative, or theologically speaking, from Romans 5, our covenant head. Because he broke it and failed that covenant, we were born sinful, spiritually dead, and condemned. And there's no wiggle room here. We might think that that's a pretty terrible situation uh, to, to be in, but I, I really hope, and fingers across, that I'm just not in Adam. Maybe you're a woman and think, oh, I'm not in Adam, I'm an Eve. Or maybe you're an evolutionist and saying, I don't even believe in Adam, it doesn't matter. No, every single human being is made from Adam. You were in him like a seed. You came from his race, and therefore you are in Adam, every single human being born comes from the spiritual genealogy and the physical genealogy of Adam. We are the seed from that fruit. But then, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great Welsh preacher in Westminster Chapel in uh, the 1900s in London, he used to say, praise God for the butts in the Bible. He was a little crass, and he'd make his jokes. It always took people off guard, this, this uptight Welsh doctor-turned-Presbyterian minister. But he would say it. I, I like the butts in the Bible. I cannot lie. He, he would say that always there is this terrible dark news, and then the word comes in, but... 
God sent Christ. But he made us alive. But now a righteousness has been made known apart from the law. But he is making all things new. This is what he would say. So get excited about this but that comes after Adam. Because we are all fated to end up like Adam who is our first fruit. Who is our covenant head. There is no escape from an apple seed producing an apple. There is no escape of a human ending up like Adam, in death, in sin, condemned for eternity, unless God makes another fruit, unless God makes another race, unless God makes another Adam, and that is Jesus Christ, the head of a whole new race. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jesus made a, God made, sorry, a second covenant with the world through Christ. A second covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace through Christ. And we receive the consequences of what Jesus does instead of what Adam does. We receive because he kept the law and paid for our sins. We are born again. We are forgiven we are made spiritually, spiritually alive, there you go, and made bodily resurrected in the age to come. And these are not humans. The, what, what, what Paul says in Romans 5 and what Paul says here uh, can confuse some. He, he, some people think that because in Adam all die and all come from Adam, Paul then says, and in Christ all are made alive. The, the heretical assumption being that every single human being on earth finds himself in Christ eventually, uh, apart from their own faith, apart from their choice, apart from their religion. And the saving benefits of Christ go to all without exception. That's not true. That's not even exegetically what, what we can pull Paul to mean. He's saying that they're fruits, they're different heads of different races. What he means is that all those in Adam die and all those in Christ live. We've already said that all those in Adam are humans. All humans are in Adam, and only Christians, Jesusites, Jesusians, call it what you want. We, we are the types of what Jesus is, the prototype. We come after his likeness, and we are made all those things because we are in Jesus. The seed in the fruit, producing after its kind. All those in Adam share in his fall, share in his failure to take responsibility for his wife, share in his failure to oppose the serpent, and we share in his sin at the tree, and we share in his banishment from paradise and his fate to die. But all those in Christ share in his resurrection, share in his willingness to take responsibility for his bride, the church, share in his opposing the serpent, share in his taking our sin at the tree, share in his welcome back into paradise, and share in his faith, which is to rise again. This is not a choice. Humans are in Adam. You don't have to make that choice. You're born into Adam. You're born into this world in all that you experience. That choice already made for you. Sin in the garden, sin in your life. That's not something that is up to you. You relate to God through Adam is to relate to him on the basis of your works, be born into a family debt by birth. You're born into a family that has a, 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 an enormous, a tremendous debt to the state. So it is. To be an Adam is to be born in debt. 
But to relate to God through Christ is to relate to God on the basis of Christ's work. Is to relate to him having been born into the family riches, which is by faith. In Adam, we get the status of death and sin. In Christ, we get the status of life and righteousness. You become in Adam by birth. You become in Christ by a second birth. You're born into Adam. You're born again into Christ. And so Jesus would say in his ministry, you must be born again. Can I ask that question to good churchgoers? At the second service for the day. Come on, I'm a churchy. Friends, are you born again? Has the Spirit brought into your life? No, not some flashy experience of, of whistles and lights and, and a warmth in your chest. I'm talking a change of heart that sees Jesus as Savior. That feelings go and they come and they go and they come. But a faith, a belief that Jesus is dead for your sin and alive for your eternal life. That he has sealed you in himself and that you need to bring nothing. It's finished for you. That is to be born again. To be able to believe on, see, trust in Jesus Christ is to be born again. And that is the, the cry of Paul. Let me read Romans 5, verse 15 to 17, where he repeats very many of the same themes. <clears throat> he says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. He's talking again about Adam and Jesus. The free gift of salvation is not like the trespass of condemnation. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Little, little brackets here, this one's for free. This forms one of the reasons that I believe that Jesus will have in heaven a multitude that vastly outnumbers those who are rotting and perishing in hell. Adam's condemnation and trespass will not reach further than the victory of Jesus from the dead by his blood. Much more has the grace of God and that free grace abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. Friends, you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There is no third option. You don't even get to tick the box that says, I don't believe this. In fact, Jesus is risen from the dead. In fact, you are in Adam or you are in Christ. And, and, and Paul's exhortation to anyone that hears him is what I'm going to repeat now, which is get yourself into Jesus. Get all those in the world that you know, that you don't know, that you could possibly reach with the gospel. Get them into Christ. Because we think naturally that it is impossible, and it's true, it's impossible to turn an apple into an orange. It's impossible, Isaiah says, to turn a leper into a healthy man. It's impossible to change the color of somebody's skin so that they're a different race. But it is not impossible for an Adamite born in sin, condemned to hell, to change their race, 
change which creation they're a part of and become as one who has transferred fruits to become seed in Jesus Christ. That is not impossible. That happens regularly as the word of God is preached. Get yourself and get others into Jesus Christ. There are, in reality, two creations in the Bible. One in Genesis and one in the Gospels. Don't just think that the, the two creations are at the very beginning, and then this creation runs its course and ends, and then the new creation is begun. Don't think that way. That's not the, the biblical way of thinking. The biblical way of thinking is that the first creation started, and halfway through its existence, the second creation was started. And there's a, a period of overlap until Jesus does away with the old creation and the existence that we live in is renovated so that everything is new. The new creation started not in the Garden of Eden, but in the garden of burial that Jesus was bound up and laid in. His coming out of the grave was the first stage of Jesus renovating the whole universe that we live in. That was the beginning of the second creation. The first creation was made with beautiful light and paradise into which darkness came and corrupted it. The second creation was, was made as a little spark of light in a dark world and that light will blast its way through the cosmos, overtaking everything. In between the second creation beginning and the first creation ending, Right? As, the, as the baton changes hands, in between Jesus' resurrection and his return, the beginning of the second creation and the end of the first creation, in that period, God is transitioning millions, even billions of souls from Adam in the old creation into Christ, the new creation. So that when it comes time to wipe away the old creation, to destroy it and put it away, many, Many are offspring of Jesus Christ in him as fruit prepared for the world to come. The first thing that God created of the new creation is Jesus. The next thing he creates are those like Jesus spiritually made alive. And what happens in the third stage is the whole world remade and we receive back our bodies. This is the biblical timeline. What there is is two races. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Jesus. Be those who have looked at Christ and his finished work on the cross and have transferred from, from being in Adam as your first fruit, as being in the race of Adam and the creation of Adam. Transfer yourself into Christ by faith. He died on the cross in the punishment for all those who would come to him. He has died so that all those who will be his seed will be purified, forgiven seed. And the call is open to anybody to come. Let me tell you this, that even Adam is not in Adam. Even Adam was transferred to Christ. Follow him, trust in him, receive the righteousness of Jesus, his death on your behalf, his resurrection as your resurrection and seal and sign of what is coming at the end of the world for those who believe. Let's pray. Father God, it is glorious to be able to come to your word and in a world of lies, and in a world of noise, and in a world of sin and temptation and bad news, we come to the Word and we find these glorious, glorious truths. 
that, that we would not believe if it was simply a man making up. We, we would not dare to believe except that you have said it. And the good news that we can come and delight ourselves in and feast on in our souls is that Jesus has become one of us and Jesus has become a second race, an ark that we can flee to to be saved from death and condemnation and hell. I thank you, Lord God, that you have been gracious to this human race. You've been gracious to those who are in Adam and that you've sent your son as the second Adam, as the beginner of a new race, as the, the firstborn into the new creation that we can follow by faith, that we can step into and receive all of his righteousness, all of his blessings, forgiveness, and grace. I pray, Lord, that you would transfer many through the ministry, the preaching, the, the sharing, the praying, the tracting of those who call this church their home. May this be a, a, not just a home where people come and learn, but a hub of, of missional activity where your word goes out, that we, we gather for worship and we scatter for mission. Because all those who have not heard and believed on Jesus are still in Adam and have nothing but condemnation and have nothing but hell awaiting them. Please glorify your son through all of this that is believed on tonight and all that we will go and do for the sake of his glorious name. We pray in his name. And everybody said, Amen.